I chiefy. Uh, oh, you're you're not a chief. Hi. You going to listen to the podcast? Two dudes recorded the podcast. Ye be warned. Their opinions don't reflect that of their employers. Also, keep the kids away. You want this podcast? For $10,000, I'll get Dude 1, Dude 2, the whole damn double feature. Welcome to Two Dudes, One Double Feature, the show in which, well, the title doesn't really need much explanation, so it's, it's, it is what it is. Two dudes, two movies, that's it. The end. Wow. Yeah. I'm fed up now. <laughs> I'm like, listen, you get it. I mean, let, let's not insult the newcomers, though. Anybody who's new coming to this, because, you know. I, I, it's more of a personal thing, really. I'm just... <laughs> I'm just like I'm trying. I'm, I've been trying. I'm done. <laughs> well, we're not. We're clearly we're not done because we clearly got at least another seventy minutes of usable audio left oh, in this oh, episode. Oh shoot! You're so. right. Okay, hold on. <clears throat> Let me say, welcome. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Oh my gosh! I am dude one, Richard. Dude two, Joe. Okay. Speaking of that, I have an update mm. on the Joe front because as we talked about in past episodes, you know it's. Knowing you as Joey, it's it's kind of weird to hear Joe, admittedly. Especially because I know other Joes, and you were always the, like, the distinction. You were, like, Joey. So I was like, okay, I know Joey, and then there's all these other Joes, whatever. But now I'm like, you know what? It's it's kind of like Robert De Niro. Because Robert De Niro, to us, to, like, th- he's the legend that is Robert De Niro. But to people that know him, you know, like, when you hear Martin Scorsese talk about him, he's like, oh, that's Bob. Yeah, that's Bob over there. People that worked with him, like Ben right. Stiller calls him Bob. So so I'm starting to look at it look at it like that a little bit. So so while you're Joey to me, to everyone else, you're the legend that is Joe. Fair enough. Fair enough. I like that. I mean I still hate the whole thing, but you know. <laughs> but I don't hate the person. That's just so you know. Oh. I don't hate the person. Well that's that's nice. How is Robert De Niro though, by the way? Are you talking to me? Yes. Are you talking yeah. to me? What are, what are you trying to do? Like, a, what are you doing right now? <laughs> Listen, I am, <laughs> as we know, I'm a huge connoisseur of cinema. And I'm, of course, referencing an all-time classic. I am, of course, talking about the early 2000s film, Rocky and Bullwinkle, where Robert De Niro s- plays the fearless leader that is peak cinema right there okay 
All right, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's totally not referencing another famous role that he did that involved taxis and Are you talking about the are you talking about the hit early two thousands movie with Jimmy Fallon and Queen Latifah called Taxi? Oh man, I forgot that was a thing. <laughs> yeah, remember he had a movie career before he was the host of the Tonight Show? Yes. It was weird. Yes. Tis very, very strange. Uh no, but Joe in all seriousness, I, I've been doing okay. I just picked up the silent version of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, this Blu-ray was from Kino, you know, and I've been looking forward to a Blu-ray release of this one for a very long time because I've never seen it. I've heard about it for uh, many years. I was I saw your review of it on Letterboxd, and I was so, like, I was, like, kind of taken back. I was, like, I was surprised to see that that was your thought because you... We're telling me about this, and you seemed so excited about it, and I'd never heard of it, and just I and 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 <laughs> and so uh, when I saw that, I was like, "Wow, I didn't expect that." I mean, not to say that you know, I feel like I know your your taste in movies. I know it to a degree, but it was it was still kind of like mm-hmm. like, "Wow, I didn't expect that." I thought I thought I guess I'm saying I thought it would have been higher. Well. I get, my my thing is like with with the story I the characters were very much a big weak link in this movie and the movie's only like 86 minutes long and Ned Land is barely a character you know and I just really like the angle of the Disney movie where it felt more like a prison almost like a prison escape movie in certain instances basically with this one the the most important element is the underwater photography which is basically why it's in the National Film Registry. And the underwater photography, it's really amazing to see something from over 100 years ago. And then also think about how far we've come since then. Like, think about, like, all the like the planet Earth or, like, you know, Blue, Blue Earth Planet documentaries we've had since. And, like, how we can get the ocean in, like, 4K. Right. And we can go to a Best Buy and just sit in a chair and, and look at that stuff. Or back then, this was a huge, like, revolutionary... Um, photograph you know process you know and there's some really great scenes using that uh technology but aside from that there it's just it's a you know there's a lot of stuff oh there's way too many characters i'll say that there's way too many characters in this movie i know it's not one of our double features but would you would you recommend it i think if you're a fan of jules verne or if you're a fan of like looking at early like film technical processes and all that kind of stuff i can't recommend it enough i mean you gotta it's nice to have this on Blu-ray, you know, with the new 4K restoration and the score. There's also a commentary track, which I really need to dig into and, and listen, and maybe they'll give me a greater appreciation for it. But otherwise, it's kind of, a, if to me, you feel, it feels standard in a lot of other aspects. But if you're a silent film fan, I definitely recommend it. But anyone else, um, okay. I'm not sure, um, you know. On that, I will say on that note of the, you mentioned, uh, like, the like the TVs and, and a Best Buy like people like like some of the things they show on the TVs to like show off the TV. It made me think of a, uh, a kind of a funny story. So there's a Best Buy not that far from me that I frequent. Maybe not as much obviously anymore, but or right now at least. But there was one time I went in there. They have obviously in like the very back corner of the store they have the video game section where you know you can test out the game systems and see what you know games are coming out and everything. And normally I don't see like a chair 
anymore. Like sometimes you'll see like a couch set up in like the middle of the store. People can watch like like when 3D TVs came out, you could test out the 3D TV technology and uh, see how it works. But it was funny because I saw this guy sitting in like like a random chair that he, maybe he got from the back or something, and it looked like he was playing a demo of a game. But when I got to him, he was full on fast asleep snoring so loud and not even kidding you this had been going on for a good like 20 minutes that i was i was in the store like shopping around looking at stuff periodically i would go back to the store and i would just see him napping Mm -hmm. and i'm like this dude is so comfortable (laughs) like he doesn't care where he is unless unless there was just something like i i kind of felt like that's got to be embarrassing to wake up in the middle of a best buy (laughs) and just be like Oh no. <laughs> people people would hear me snore. Like I just remember when I was when I was in school and I was like in grade school, you know, falling asleep in class or like being in the middle of a dream or something and then wake up, I was in the middle of class and I was snoring. And I wake up and everyone's staring at me. This has happened before. And it it's haunting a little bit. But I just thought it, that just the first thing you made me think of a little bit was uh just that experience. I have I have a picture on uh, my social media somewhere, I think it was on Facebook, of that guy just kicking back, just... <sighs> oh my god. You know what? That's the uh, another thing I miss right now, is just going to Best Buy, honestly, and just browsing their, their discs and checking out the, the, cur- the 4K TVs, the curved TVs, and actually before the pandemic, I was thinking about getting a new, like, a new sound system for my TV. You know, not that mine is bad, but I was going to give my mom my my sound bar mm-hmm. at one point and get something perhaps a little more elaborate on the sound end of things i actually went there the other day because they just op- they just opened up mine not that long ago and I, you know, i'm trying to get out more and I'm, but i'm also trying to be safe when i do because you can't just be cooped up in your house because it's just like you start breathing in things and you know it's just it's not the best idea so no pun intended so uh, they recently reopened my Best Buy to to obviously to limitations and with safety mm. procedures, and so I went in there. I shopped around for a little bit. It kind of felt like a normal like how I used to, but at the same time, there was still that kind of creeping like there's other people in here. There's people wearing masks wrong. This dude's got his nose out. What is happening? So I I didn't stay in long. <laughs> I didn't I. I did not stay in that store long. I'm still just ordering things. If I if I buy anything, it's it's either I really want it, or I think like it's away from things enough that I can just grab it and then put it in my bag and then sanitize. So, but mostly I'm still just ordering things. But I'm trying to get out. Basically, I guess is that's how I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I guess is I've I've been trying to get out a little bit more, um, just to like, just to stave off the the cabin fever a, a little Good. bit. Well, you know, it's one one way people have been trying to cure this cabin fever is, especially where I live, is going to the beach, the summertime. Because it is, it is going to the beach. Is is that time? Normally, it'd be that time to just flock to the beach and just chill in the sand. I'm not a beach person per se. I just it's it's sticky. The water's gross. Sand get not like to to quote Star Wars. I hate sand. It's coarse. It's rough, it's irritating, and it gets everywhere. I know we're just quoting movies this whole episode. <laughs> That's this whole this whole movie is just a quote is a uh, quote show. No, but 
the, the idea of going to the beach during this whole pandemic lockdown situation, it really does make me think of, in more ways, ways than one, the 1975 Dana. classic and our first title Dana. of the day, Jaws. Dana. <laughs> Dana, Dana, Dana. Sorry, I wanted to do it. And you know what? Well, I think it's it's a, it's an important factor is that music. I mean, people just that theme alone will take will will transport people's minds to that location. The woman swimming in the water, you know, just just her floating there. Even there's that shot from like under the water where she's just kind of like moving her arms around trying to float. But then you just the oh, camera gets absolutely. like slowly closer and closer to her, and then it just pulls yeah. her under. Like that's still like. <laughs> It's it's still like oh my god, leave her alone. But yeah, no Jaws. This was one of our early when we had our initial thought process when we were crafting this podcast. We Jaws was one of the first titles that we we decided that we would want to tackle at some point. It, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty, we probably wish we would have talked about this during like Fourth of July. You know, because this is for me. This is like my Fourth of July movie that I watch. Every single year, you know. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, obviously, the movie's set during Fourth of July, and like the the whole the whole point the whole like time of the movie is set during that like Fourth of July weekend. Because as they say in the movie, it's the summer. It's the beach of the summer. It's it's the place everyone goes to to have a good time. It's a summer town. It's a summer town. As uh, the the mayor with his really cool uh, uh, sport coat with a bunch of anchors on it, you know. <laughs> just comes in it's like this is a summer town we can't we can't be having these problems people come here and spend their money we need that summer money actually that's uh, definitely let's bring that up so the the one thing with jaws is obviously we got a monster we have a giant shark right we have a monster here it's you know yes it's a it's a big blockbuster pl- big blockbuster but what people also forget about not forget but one of the big things with jaws is the the human drama component of it like the story isn't just about the, a shark it is about one of the big things is about this this um the summer island this area that really de- its whole economy depends on tourism and that is destroyed when our shark decides to come in you know very much in a way like what mm-hmm. we've been in a different sort of way, but in a similar enough almost allegory or whatever to the what what's going on with COVID-19. You know, all these businesses and things had to close up initially. They were losing money. And there's even a line in Jaws where they're just like, you want to be on welfare the whole winter? That really made me think of what was going on right now. It's actually kind of startling how relevant it is. Yeah, I was like, I feel like the whole movie... Is just much more frustrating to watch now. As much as I love it, it's so much more frustrating to watch now because of how much you relate to it. Even now, I'm sure when they were making it back in the day, when Steven Spielberg was making the movie, you know, obviously he had his themes and his allegories that he wanted to make and everything he wanted to tackle. But it's just crazy how it's become even more relevant to watch that movie. Even just there's that one scene in the movie that it just it irks me so much because obviously there's those debates obviously about whether or not they should close the beach and then when they say they should close the beach 
um, everyone's like, oh, no, oh, God, oh, like everyone's freaking out. And then they like, essentially, they they shirk that they say, no, nah, no, nah, we're gonna we're gonna keep the beach open. This is a summer town. We're gonna keep this town going. We don't care if people's lives are in danger. And there's that whole scene when uh, the mayor is walking on the beach. And no one's going in the water because everyone's afraid. Everyone's genuinely afraid to go into the water. And he irks one of one of the one of like like one of the people in the town to go into the water. He's like, "Go into the water. We need people. We like go in." And and we both, I know we both audibly kind of were just like, "Screw you!" I'm I'm pretty sure to the mayor, and especially because when the guy goes into the water, as you brought up. He brings his kids with him. That was my biggest problem. It's one thing to, in that type of situation especially, to just be like, okay, whatever, I'm going to go in the water, and even if there is something out there, I'm only putting my own life at risk at that point, potentially. But then you have children, and I'm like, this guy is both terrible. I hate you. Yeah, it, it's... Ugh. I would say also to point out, earlier in the movie... When we first got like when the when the people of the town first got their their signal that there was a there was a shark, a kid died. It was a child on a raft that was eaten, and a dog as well, which is also sad. But a child was what kind of kicked things off. So your your smart idea is to tell this guy to go into the water, and then he brings his family in. It it's so unfortunately relevant to everything going on, and it's it just really frustrates you i don't like again i love this movie but after that i'm like i don't know if i want to watch this again right now <laughs> uh, but but going off of that idea you know the kid is you know the shark does eat the kid and, and the dog but the you know and yeah there there are bloody scenes in jaws but the way they handle those scenes in particular there's some cle like some clever editing and uses of shots with them especially with the dog where you see like i think the dog's letting, like pip it or whatever yeah guys like Pepe, 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 and then you you see like the stick that that the dog had in its mouth just floating in the in the water. It just says it all. You don't you don't need a whole big to do with it, you know? right? And then like the raft, which is obviously been deflated. It's not covered in blood, but it has a red water. Again, it's that it's that simple idea of great horror that I think some people, especially in the in the early two thousands, forgot that. Sometimes not showing something, it's is just as scary. It's that it's it's a simple notion that some of the best horror directors and some of the best people in horror have utilized is this idea that less is more, which is just a universal thing that people obviously no pun intended. Jaws universal movie. It's just that idea that sometimes not showing something is just as scary as if you were to show it, and that's obviously that classic trope even just with jaws like the you know you don't you barely see the shark until the end of the movie it's just that building horror like the song like the da, 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 i would da, also da, say to that you know? too that it was also a matter of necessity with the shark we're not showing that much of the shark right because the famous thing is like the shark's not working the shark is not working and it, you know there are so many instances where the, like the shark was just malfunctioning so they had to get very clever with how how they were gonna how they were gonna film this, you know, and so that like because because of those like the limitations, but also like the the craft of legendary director Steven Spielberg, who at this point didn't really have too much under his belt at this at that moment yet. No, this was this was early early in his, in his career. career. It becomes like a Hitchcockian 
movie. You know, this is a concept that we were talking about this while we were watching. Like, th- this this could have been just a Roger Corman B movie, you know, where you, you would probably have, like, a fake-looking shark. And it, it would look... It would probably be a fun movie to watch, don't get me wrong, but... No, yeah. Th- this, th- like, the way... What, what the movies in the 70s did, like, Jaws and Star Wars and our, you know, one of our other movies we are talking about, is that it takes these B-movie concepts... And it ele- it elevates them to to a point where, you know, they're not they're not only just like things you could take seriously, but they're also like critical darlings. And then, as in the case with Jaws, multiple Academy Award nominations, um, including Best Picture, you know. And right. with Jaws, I think one of the big aspects in making that possible, not just with Steven Spielberg's craft and the editing and all that, is the cast. The cast of Jaws, the three male leads in this movie. It, you'd be hard pressed to find another trio that that works quite as well as Brody, Hooper, and Quint, masterfully played by Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfus, Robert Shaw, all fantastic, and all of them in their own ways, like distinct. And I know, obviously, when people talk about the characters, they quote Quint's, you know, various monologues and his various like maritime, like creepy but somewhat you know, serious, but somewhat charming and weird, like, uh, sayings that he has throughout the movie. And of course the, the famous line that Roy, uh, that Roy Scheider Brody says in the movie, right. When he sees the shark for the first time, he just steps back and he's like, well, you say it. you're, you, I'm going to let you do this quote. You're going to need a bigger boat. We're going to need a bigger boat again. Like, you know, they, they feel iconic in their own right. And it's, Again, another another great element of horror. I know this isn't a hundred percent a horror movie, but it's kind of it's in its bones. It is a horror movie, but you want to have great characters that you follow because you want to care about them when they're in, you know, truly excessive danger. Being on the boat looking for the shark uh, in the third act, you know, you, you you care enough about these characters at that point that you don't want anything bad to happen to them. You want them to be able to to find the shark and, and destroy it. So it's, and that, and again, that does both obviously from the direction, but also just from the performances of all those actors and doing a great job and the chemistry and everything. I even love that scene in the boat when they're like comparing scars. Yes. Great scene. And they're, and they're like, pull it. Like, he's like, this is from a, a shark. Cause I was studying it. And the other guy's like, here's one on my leg. And then like, they, they literally just leave their legs on the table. Because they're just so comfortable with each we'll other drink, at that we'll point. Dr- we'll drink to our legs. <laughs> and then they all start singing the song. And it's it's just, Show it's, again. Show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. Dude, dude. Know. But on a, on a, on a more uh, sinister note, in that scene, one of the most chilling sequences in the whole movie is the famous uh, USS Indianapolis speech that Robert Shaw gives, which... I didn't look too much into the history of that speech, but apparently it went through a bunch of different writers, including Robert Shaw himself. So it's really just like was an amalgamation, like a big teamwork effort. And he talks about how, you know, he's like a veteran of World War II and like the ship ship was blasted with torpedoes and all the men are in the water and they're getting picked off one by one by sharks and seeing his watching his friends die and I was realizing this when I was watching it this time and like the, the most chilling part is when he talks about the most frightening part of that whole ordeal for him was the rescue part because he didn't know if he was going to actually make it on the rescue ships at that point. And it's such a, oh, 
and and Robert Shaw like the way he delivers it too is is just like is perfect, just absolutely perfect. I mean, you could not have, could not have asked of a better performance of anybody. That's why he's probably the most iconic of the three. But again, like everybody else, I think they they also play their parts perfectly well. Like, oh no, everybody's great. Roy Scheider is just me on a regular basis. Like he's just so <laughs> it, it totally nervous. is. <laughs> so so nervous and just so done with everything just it's like i just imagine like that scene when he's just drinking just a full glass of wine <laughs> just like i hate all of this <laughs> that's just that's just everybody in in 2020 right now it's like i see this full glass of wine it's not even like a wine glass it's just a regular like full cup yeah like a pint glass of wine Richard Dreyfus is also at, interjects some the really much needed moments of humor when Quint like crushes his can of beer and then yes. <laughs> it's, uh, yes. Cooper crushes his styrofoam glass or when like he's driving the boat and he's like yar gar <laughs> and then like 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 he's just doing the faces at him just like yeah. but that's the oh, other great. thing too because you were talking about how this is kind of a horror movie yeah and we also talk about like the john williams score which is absolutely brilliant but when you watch like moments in the movie where like when they shoot the barrels on the shark you hear like almost whimsical like pirate music yeah you know it's almost like an arrow like i think john williams even said it was like almost like like an errol flynn like action scene or or something or like a, like the seahawk you know I remember Roger Ebert, I think Roger Ebert said this in one of his, his review for Jaws, like in his great movies um, series, where he was saying, it's as scary as The Exorcist, but it's more fun. And I don't know if it's as scary as The Exorcist, but it's definitely like a fun, quote unquote, horror movie. It's a lot of fun to watch Jaws. Oh yeah. As intense as it can get, and, and especially these days, as frustrating as it could get watching it, um, you can't you can't deny that you know because of again the john williams score because like you get those classic whimsical kind of adventure notes that he puts in uh, a lot of his movies just the whole like when they're especially like when they're on the boat or you know when they're out actually doing things like it feels like you know like you were saying like feels like a classic kind of it almost feels like going back to the like literally the one of the first things we were talking about in this episode Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea which i was just realizing this too <laughs> This version of 20,000 Leagues is from Universal, and so is Jaws, which is kind of a weird thing to think about. Oh my god. Well, you know, hey, life has funny coincidences, I guess. That's my only explanation. (laughs) Do you remember when you first watched Jaws, out of curiosity? Because it's a movie I think some people watch when they're, they're young. I actually, I'd heard about it when I was younger, but I never watched it. I only... The thing, the funny thing was, I knew about the ride more than anything. I knew about obviously, you know, the ride. You go on the boat and the shark pops out of the water. And there's obviously uh, uh, later on. I watched Mallrats, and there's that joke in Mallrats where he's like, uh, you know, I wanted to propose to her when we go when we went to our trip to Universal, and he's like, when were you gonna do it on the jo- on the on the Jaws ride? When Jaws pops out of the water, <laughs> he's like, "Oh, that's so romantic." <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, <laughs> like that was the ride was constantly what I thought of. Um, this is again, this was this was probably 2011, 2010. Like, it took a while to actually sit and watch it. I genuinely was like, okay, because obviously there's that hype 
going into like one of these kind of classic movies like everyone talks about jaws you know it's 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 uh it's an institution it's an icon it's a it's a it's this amazing piece of cinema in film history that you just have to watch so you're already kind of going in with that like overhyped nature but then when you watch it you're like you know what i get it it's like when we it's like when i watched like seven samurai it's like now i get it i get why this is as beloved as it is and while it is scary and it, and it has you know all those notes, um, I I genuinely enjoyed it when I first watched it. For me, I remember watching it when I was younger, but it it's, it terrified me as a child to the point where I could not look at the VHS cover of Jaws without like running away from it. Oh really? So like my mom had to like this is like a true story, and like this remember when I talked to you about like the Jack Nicholson tape? Yes. Like the 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 Batman tape and how I thought it <laughs> winked at me. Yeah. It was the same. It was like the same thing. So they had to put the hide those away into a drawer somewhere. So that and in fact, like I still have my Batman VHS tape. I don't know where my Jaws tape went. I think we got rid of it at some point, which is the craziest. Oh my thing. god! Now I want to now want to like yell at my my younger self, but you know. Um, and then I watched it on TV, and I'm like, wow, this is really good. And I watched it over and over and over and over and over again. You know, because it, it's such an easy. It's like two hours. It's not. It's not a. It's not a hard watch at all. And, and when you get older, like you anticipate the scares and stuff, so it's almost more of like a fun experience. And Jaws is definitely just a really, really fun time on the for the most part. Yeah, I remember the jo- the Jaws Universal attraction. I de- I don't remember ever doing the Jaws Universal attraction, but I do. Uh, when my dad went to Universal, you know, back in the nineties, I I think I have a picture of him with. Because they, they used to have like the like the fake shark that they found that what you know that wasn't really the one they were looking for. That right. They have it like hanging there, like a replica of that. Oh, that's cool. You know what I mean? Like in the in the scene of the movie, where they cut open. Uh, yeah. They cut open the. And they're shark like, oh, they, we they got it. it. Yeah. We finally so, got it. You know what? That that second shark almost to go back to the like the COVID nineteen connections that we have now. It's just that second sh- that first shark almost feels like when we like quote unquote flatten the curve. And everyone's like, oh, we're doing great now. Let's start opening things up. And then it's like, nah, fam. <laughs> that oh, It's still out there. And we're sucking horribly at taking yeah. care of it. Oh, man. And it was funny, too, because like, I was even like, you know what? Uh, Dreyfus's character makes me think of, he's like the Fauci a little bit. Or Then I was just like, you know what? I'm going to do the, the Del Toro Shape mm-hmm. of Water, like, three-character thing that we were talking about in the last episode. And just say all three of those guys, to some degree, are Fauci. <laughs> Man, now I'm just imagining, like, you go out in public, coronavirus out in public, <laughs> you wear the mask, COVID-19 sees that. <laughs> Chiefy. <laughs> It's not like going down the pond chasing bluegills and tummy cards. <laughs> this illness will swallow you whole. Oh my god, could you imagine like like House of Representative meetings with, <laughs> with that version of Fauci? Just like, you open the church, COVID goes into church. <laughs> no one wears a mask. <laughs> no, uh, uh, <laughs> he's talking no he's talking to trumpy he's like trumpy <laughs> <laughs> oh yes no oh my god that would be so that that would amuse me right now are we are we using an anti-covid cage <laughs> as they say like an anti he's like the anti-shark cage <laughs> and spoiler alert the, sh- the cage doesn't work in the movie 
going off of that though, I, I wanted to focus on a little bit of the filmmaking stuff before we before we um, wrap it up. But with this movie, okay, this is one of Spielberg's earliest works, and whenever he talks about it, it's a it's a very stressful experience. Now oh, it's stressful sure. when you make any movie, okay, and I know this because you you you've made you've made your own short film. I have, and it's it's a it's a hard thing, but it's not easy. You know, with Spielberg making a feature film that's like that's a big budget movie and you have to rely on the water which he had to find a look they had to find a location where you didn't see land on all four sides which is why jaws feels so isolating is because they feel it feels like you can't just jump out of the boat and swim away right you also had to find a location where it was like 30 feet deep with, with that type of location so the shark could work but also you have to account for just the water in general. The water, you don't control the water. The wa water controls the timetable of these things. Like, there are some shots where there's like a slow, not shots in the movie, but like there's times. Water does what it wants. Water does what it wants. But there's like sometimes where like a boat passed them and they were like, God damn it. And they had to wait for the boat to pass them because they couldn't do anything. Uh, when I made a short film when I was in school, it was called uh, Disbelief. Uh, you should watch it. It's on my YouTube channel. Uh, my watch was. Uh, <laughs> the lighting's terrible, though, so don't don't judge too harshly. There was a... Because we filmed in the, the downtown area of where I live. Um, it's like 30 minutes away. And it's not ideal as far as, like, you know... Like, it's got some, like, you know, interesting characters that live there. And we're in the middle of filming this scene uh, the for the opening of the movie. And this guy comes up to us. This, like, kind of, like, somewhat scraggly-looking guy. He comes up to us... With a taser, and he cut, and he's like, "I found this on the ground." Like, could you? What is this? I found something. And he's like pointing it at us, and we're all just like, "Whoa, hold up, now, sir, hold on, sir." And um, thank, thankfully, my uh, my lead actor Robert, who uh, if he listens to this, I love you, man, uh, who went to police academy because mm. he wanted to be a police officer, and then uh, coincidentally enough, was playing a detective in the movie I was doing. He noticed it right away and calmed the situation down, took it away from the guy, and we asked him, you know, to leave. And then, uh, oh, I think, did, I don't know if he took it away from him. I know, I know he, like, handled the situation and the guy ended up going away. I, he might have kept the taser, I don't remember. But I just remember, like, when that happened, I was like, Ugh. So, like, obviously it's not a boat going in the water ruining the shop, but that was definitely... You've never told that, me that like, story. I've, I've, I've never heard this this story. This that That is wild. Well, now you know. <laughs> but going off of that, I think about filmmakers like Spielberg and Lucas and some of those, like, 70s, 80s filmmakers. And I think about, like, all, like, the stress that they had to go through. Like, it's, inf it's really, like, crazy. Like, when you read about, like, Star Wars, how much, like, stress George Lucas was under while making that movie... And then obviously Spielberg with Jaws. And it makes me think of like how, in a the sense, they sort of developed like filmmaking technologies to try to make their own lives easier. Right. Because if you can if you can make things easier while in, in certain instances make the product look better, it's an interesting thing to to look at with these films. But Jaws, I mean, it is there's what we've said about Jaws, everybody has said about Jaws at one point or another. It's one of those films where it's very hard to have an original thought, and that's not to take away from what you have said about the movie. It's just, everybody said it. You know, the movie's 45 years old. It's been around. Everyone's had a chance to see it, and for the most part, a lot of people kind of have the sim somewhat similar viewpoints on it. So, I think that'll wrap it up on our discussion on Jaws. 
when we return from our brief intermission, we're going to go from the bottom of the ocean to the depths of space. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Two Dudes, One Double Feature. Uh, that one kind of threw my voice out a little bit. <coughs> I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good, I'm okay now. So, in the last segment, we talked about, of course, Jaws. Now, let's go to the other direction, into space, with our next movie, Alien. Or, as some people liked to call it, Jaws, but in space. That's a very apt description of this movie. And I think about, this came out in 79, right? 1979? 1979. And I think about this, and I and I go, okay, so I have to imagine, like, being a producer back then, you're like, okay, what are the two biggest movies of all time right now? Jaws and Star Wars. Let's just take them. And smash them together, and we get Alien. Make a sandwich with these two movies and hope for the best. But of course, Alien has so much more going for it than than just being Jaws in space. It has its whole, a whole other like set of things, and this one is much more of a horror movie than Jaws is. Jaws is, has a sense of whimsy and fun, whereas Alien, no, that there's nothing. That's not in there at all. There's no whimsy. There's no twinkling. <laughs> there's 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 just dirty spaceship. Just there's like rain and muck and just it's 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 yeah it's yeah it's gross. That that's um yeah that's a good point. And I, I like I said it's almost I was looking at this sort of like a lineage. Like when you go to Star Wars, I know we keep talking about Star Wars this episode, but it's important. Nothing. Hey, listen. Nothing wrong with that. No. I mean, Star Wars, it, one of the big things with Star Wars is that it looks like it was like a lived-in space environment. It looked like a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Even when you get to the Death Star, like, not all of that was very clean at all. So, it, it makes sense for Alien to be the way it is. And then I also kind of like to think that Alien sort of, obviously because both Alien and uh, Blade Runner, same director, Ridley Scott, sort of had like a similar like grimy... Uh, aesthetic in in certain um certain instances you know very far off from like the uh i guess you could say like the star trek uh identifying aspects of space movies you know and like especially that time you think of uh 
you think of Star Trek, you think of like the super clean, you know, smooth kind of environments, you know, of the USS Enterprise and whenever they're walking around, it's super like pristine and like so like whoever the janitor is on the USS Enterprise, listen, that's the greatest janitor in the history of janitors. That is the best custodian ever. I hope they're getting paid well, but you also think about, too, not just Star Trek, but also, like, science fiction before Star Wars was very clean. Right. And I remember, like, watching, like, a documentary about other science fiction films before Star Wars where a lot of it did feel, like, very sleek, shiny, and, like, this is the future, like, how you would view, like, when when you went to Disney's, Disney's Tomorrowland. You know, it's like a future that never was, It almost makes me think of those, like, Tex Avery cartoons. Where it was like, you know, like a vision of the future that kind of like parodied almost like that. Like we mentioned Carousel Progress in the last episode. Um, like it almost like parodied that a little bit. Yeah. You just, you see like like a dishwasher that has like a million arms in it or something. I always loved those when I was younger. Those made me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> like something yeah. would go wrong. Oh, man. But yeah, like the griminess of, of Alien I think really helps add to the realism element it's i remember ben mankwood saying this it's like it feels weird talking about this but it makes it feel realistic and (laughs) that's like a good way i think to describe it because what's cool about this these these aren't scientists these except for maybe one character but like these aren't like major doctors or you know like specifically astronauts these are just space truckers man they're space truckers yeah these are these are just like the working class the working class of the of the stars I mean, there's even that line um, by uh, uh, one of the one of the crewmen that's like, you know, we're a commercial airliner. <laughs> Essentially, we're a commercial ship. We're not a we're not we're not a rescue crew. In regard to all that too, there's like a, almost like a little class element in Alien as well. It feels like I'm bringing up class every week, but it, it's it's important in a lot of these movies. Yeah, I was gonna say class is an important element in movies and in a, in, a, in a lot of movies, really. Just. You know, there's movies that more directly talk about class struggles, like like Parasite, for example, is very much about class struggles, mm-hmm. and you know, the, like upper class versus lower class and all that. Yeah. Um, then there's movies like Alien that are like that have a more subtle approach to it, but it's important to the overall like themes and everything that's happening in the movie. And Parasite is is I don't mean that as a pun. Because I know, I know the face hugger is kind of a the chest burster is kind of a parasite. I just, I just realized that. I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> I didn't mean that as a pun. So okay. not that that's a problem, but you know. No, but uh, with the with, with Alien, you know, one of the main things in the movie, the corporation, the upper levels of the the company that they work for, are like, you must get this asset, aka the alien, to us in one piece. We don't care about the crew members. We just care about that asset. That like the people who work on the ship are expendable, you know. But that's not the only thing Alien has going on as far as the thematic things to it. The biggest thing to I guess compare it to would be uh, the work of Lovecraft. His main theme that he had in like all of his stories and like the whole like Cthulhu mythos and everything was this fear of the unknown, the fear of finding something new not knowing so much about it and that's something that right now again you know that's kind of the big thing with these with both these movies is how relevant they feel is this idea of uncertainty and how scary it is and 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 not knowing what's going to happen or not knowing how things are going to play out and that's something that alien taps into so well because you know obviously 
you know, these characters, they get a transmission, they got to go to this, uh, this, uh, basically lost temple, essentially, in space, which sounds much scarier than, like, a lost temple on Earth, because at least in that instance, you know humans in some way were involved, unless you're talking about the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, but, um, uh, to go back to Spielberg for a second, um, but, uh, you know, you go in space, you go to this, like, this, essentially this brand new place, and, um, you see, and it's just, it's terrifying, um, what, what plays out after they d- discover what they discover. Absolutely. I mean, what's cool is with the movie before we had Prometheus and Alien Covenant and other, and other related media, it was just presented to us as like this lost civilization thing. Like we had the space jockey. It was like, wow, this, this adds like a grander mythos. But we, did, we didn't need to know what his exact purpose was. We just need to know something went horribly wrong to this guy and to right. everybody else who was in this place. I was a fun fact. I still have yet to watch all of Prometheus because I always fall asleep watching it. <laughs> it's it, like every time I've seen it, I, I can't get through it. I just can't. I'm sorry. It bores me. <laughs> That's that's most that that's for most people. I would say it's a it can be a boring experience. <laughs> Prometheus. Like, uh, I just, I just I just know the opening of the movie where like the like the 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 marble looking like muscular dude drinks the the tar like whatever and then like freaks out and dies, and then I know they go to the planet and then there's old guy Pierce as uh, Wayland who you know the Wayland Company Wayland organization. And then I know they get to the planet. I know they kind of encounter like a like a proto face hugger looking thing. And then other things happen. And then you know, obviously Michael Fassbender's David does weird things. And then uh, I know there's that bit when Numi Rapace like does surgery on herself, which was kind of an intense scene, admittedly. Oh, yeah. But it loses its intensity when you don't know why she's doing it. You're like, you you kind of figure why, but then. And then, of course, the the very infamous moment when uh, Charlie Saren and her are running away from the crescent moon ship that we see in Alien, literally rolling, and you and you literally go left, right, one of you jump to the side, <laughs> and then no, no, Charlie Saren gets killed. Poor use of your Charlie Saren right there, Ridley Scott. You could use your you could use your Charlie Saren a lot better than that. Very poor. The big one, the big theme for this movie, though, I was thinking it was like more of the sexual themes, which is like two weeks in a row we have something that deals with this stuff. <laughs> Do you want to talk about it this time? <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about it. I'll talk right. about it a little bit this time. Uh, th- this is going to go into like sensitive topics, folks, um, particularly se- sexual assault. I'm not going to dabble on it too much into the details. Skip to 5105. Just just know that it's going to get it's, it's going to get a little a hairy. Fit triggers, then don't listen right now. But with the alien, with the xenomorph, with the, with the face huggers and all that, literally impregnate. They're, they're basically forcing themselves on the people. You know, they're they're for, they're, yes. they're forcibly putting their seed into another another living being to reproduce. And this was actually something we were watching in the the do- alien documentary, Memory: The Origins of Alien, or whatever. And they talked. They showed graphics. Which is really good re- documentary. Really good. Really good documentary. Really good. And they show footage of like I think wasps. These like wasps that like put their their larva their eggs into like a caterpillar and then at some point oh that was gross the larva are like ready to come out it's yeah it's disgusting i looked uh, i had to look away it's gross but 
Alien, I mean, Alien, it, it, it's like the chestburster scene is such a memorable sequence and it's still unnerving to this day. And it's like that scene alone is why it's rated oh R, God. dude. Oh my goodness. Oh, dude, just the, you know, John Hurt, first of all, was an incredible actor. He's a legend, will always be a legend. Even if in that one scene when he falls down uh, into the egg pit, and it's it's so unbelievable. <laughs> he just kind of like, like, oh no, I'm falling. But <laughs> the chestburster scene makes up for that 100%. Makes up for that tenfold. But it's just the, the this absolute violent and the and the intense nature to which he acts to everything. And even just the way it's set up. You know, it starts off very calm, very chill. Like, in the documentary, they mentioned, like, how Kubrick does it. You know, he, like, kind of squares everything off, makes it uniform um, before the action mm-hmm. kicks in. And then, he, then it becomes very handheld, very fo- very much following the, the action and the actors. And that's exactly what uh, Ridley Scott does in this movie with that scene, is that he, you know, frames it very calm, very... Like, obviously, it's a little unnerving, because you don't know what's about to happen. It seems like it's too calm. You know, it's too good to be true. And then, you know, John Hurt, he's just, like, scarfing down food. He's so he's so happy that he's just eating some food and that he's not in that state anymore. And then he just starts going, like, Ugh. Like, he starts, like, reacting to it. And then even the way that, the, that they frame the shot, the way the camera is, sometimes you don't even see his reaction. So it makes that – it kind of adds to the whole unknown factor. And then when it gets to that moment – um, he's just wriggling around, and then of course, I feel like we kind of have to mention that there's the there's that whole famous like they didn't know the actors didn't know what was going to happen. Well, it's not hundred percent. I mean, obviously, I imagine prior to their like they were like okay, so something's about to break out of his chest, but they just didn't know how it was going to happen. So they knew the ends, but they didn't know how they were going to yeah. get there. And so, um, like when uh, you get that first spurt of blood, and his shirt kind of pops, and then like. Like it, like you just see the pause there, and they're like, you know what I mean? Like they're like you could tell they were like, yeah, they're like startled for a second. They're like, oh my god, right? And uh, then obviously, what follows that, you know, the the famous like the the creature pops out, and it it kind of looks like um, uh, I <laughs> it's it's a it's phallic, it's very phallic. It, yeah, I was gonna say that, and the, the, when you get to the final like xenomorph form, it's very much like phallic, phallic imagery everywhere in regards to that also i want to point out too they pointed this out in the documentary as well ian holm when he's attacking sigourney weaver the great ian holm this is one of the best i think he's the best performance in the movie is ian holm when he's the android mm-hmm. and he's shoving like the like the magazine into uh sigourney weaver and it's like that's just a very specific it really is way to to do we were commenting yeah. on that too we were like wait a minute like why what? is he doing that? And, and then, but then, like you, but then, like you think about it, and you watch the documentary, and it's like, oh god! And to think somebody programmed him like that too—that's the crazy, right? Part. Literally, someone put it in, into his mind that he had to do something that horrific and specific to uh, Ridley, or not Ridley, but Ripley. See, it's hard. Ridley, Ripley. I feel like Ridley Scott put himself in the movie a little bit. A self-insert character, but it's actually funny too. With um, I remember in the mo- in the documentary, they're also mentioning that the character of Ripley almost could have been a dude. I mean, yeah, I think they they wrote her as as a male character, which is I think partially why, in some ways, in the movie she comes off the way she comes off. But of course, with Sigourney Weaver's performance and obviously just the way that I'm sure they had to like kind of restructure certain things. Not to say that you need to write a woman as a man to make her a better character. But to some degree, it worked in her favor. I absolutely agree. I, th- I think she is, like, such a great character. I think 
people, and of course she's great in Alien in Aliens, which she was nominated for an Oscar. I mean, you got that classic line: "Get a- get away from her, you bitch." I mean, it's just it's just it's an iconic line. Even though they mess it up in Scream Two, sorry, I'm ranting a second. Give me a second. In Scream Two, there's that scene when all the kids are talking about sequels because obviously the movie kind of is a parody or satire of, of sequels. And um, one of the characters essentially talks about how Aliens is a classic movie because they kind of say that James Cameron made all the best sequels, more or less. He's he says the line "Get away mm-hmm. from you, bitch," but then uh, freaking Randy. Uh, Jamie Kennedy's character, who is essentially supposed to be like the film nerd god in this movie, says, I believe the line is, stay away from her, you bitch. And every time I see that, I'm like, that ruins Randy's character, whoever it was that made that mistake. It was a fundamental problem, and I hate it, even though I enjoy that movie to a degree, but that moment upsets me. (laughs) Are you sure it wasn't played for laughs, though? Like, he got the line wrong... And it's like, wait a minute. You know what? It could have been, but the way I think it plays out is is I think it does play out like he legitimately means it like that. Especially because the following shot is the teacher going, you know, he's right. Like, it's that gesture of him going, you know. So, like, okay. Yeah, yeah. Fair. fair. I, I've never seen I've never seen Scream 2, so I can't comment on we'll that. Have to, we'll have to go through the Scream movies together one day. Oh, boy. <laughs> it's, I, know it's, I know it's a little spooky, but it, it'll be worth it. Trust me. Okay. Anyways, back to Alien. Back to I think her perform uh, Sigourney's performance in this is is quite is quite excellent, you know. And what what's great about it too is the way Ridley Scott shoots it. Okay, it's not like other movies where like I feel like I identify with a specific character in a lot of movies. This one is just kind of like it's the crew, you know. You know, okay, here's Harry Dean Stanton's guy. Yeah, here's the Ian Holm character. You know, there's Dallas, there, there's uh, Ripley, you know, on the ship. And the way he, even when the way he shoots it too, I mean, the way he uses close, close-ups, I think is very important as well. You know, I, I think they're used at key moments. But a lot of the time, there's a lot of, sh- there's some great shots where you see the entire crew of the ship in one shot. Yeah. People, I think people, like, obviously, and deservedly so, they put a lot of focus on Ripley's character, and she's kind of become the iconic heroine character of the Alien franchise. Mm-hmm. But I think what people tend to forget, especially with that first movie, is that it is an ensemble piece. Yeah, especially the first one. It's like everybody in that movie. I mean, the second one is kind of that, but again, Ripley is still kind of the focus, mm-hmm. obviously, For with sure. that one. Yeah. As she should be, as she should be. But in the first movie, it really is everybody. Everybody in the crew. Like you were saying with the close-ups, everybody's close-up is almost exactly the same as far as not as like the shot but like the way that it's presented mm. you know it's the way that you know they're framed you know it's different but everybody it's a, it's basically like everybody gets to shine yeah and everybody gets their moment and so it's it's done very well going off of like some filmmaking techniques and all that it's been described as like sort of like a haunted a haunted house movie in space no man because there's those there's those creeping shots like especially the whole opening of the movie is to get that slow pan yeah um, that slow-moving pan across the the hallways, and like there's no there's no music, there's no even just the whole opening of the movie, all the way to the point where we first see them is like a slow pan because obviously they pan through space, and you see Alien the title slowly coming on piece by piece as if it was a puzzle being perfectly put together. Then we finally get to the ship, the Nostromo, which is an ugly ship, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> I'm sorry, it is. It's it's like a first draft Star Wars ship, I'm sorry, but it's not supposed to be, I guess, a, an iconic ship. But anyway, 
so we even that ship like it's moving slowly in space and then we slowly like 2001 space odyssey and then we get into the ship and it's that slow pan all the way through the hallways and you see like blinking lights and then like even the 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 like the breathing almost like the air vents just the way that the ship almost feels alive and uh then eventually we get to that shot where everyone's kind of waking up and you see the you see everyone in their like little cryo chambers and the doors slowly open up and like because they mentioned this and i know we bring up the documentary a lot but we just watched it so it's on our brains but even in the documentary they mention the the bird things just being isolated and being on their own that like you know they like tip into the water pull their heads out dip in pull their heads out like even just seeing those things move by themselves it like gives that it, it does give that effect of like you know ha- like that eeriness mm. that's happening as that scene's playing out it's 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 unnerving really i, I think we we need to bring up giger oh yeah G- giger geiger hr i like to call him her you know <laughs> we're friends her <laughs> or we're friends i think he he's since passed away so we're still friends okay <laughs> anyway his design is instrumental in this movie it's like the xenomorph is one of the most despite some of the the lacking elements in the suit as far as like being convincing that's nobody's fault it was the 70s but mm. the design of the creature and the design of the face hugger the des- like it it you, you you wouldn't be able to have alien without it i mean that is such a crazy design I mean, it's it's burned into our minds. It's this terrifying image of this like slick black, almost like a latexy water, like greasy, almost looking thing. That's like it's almost like if a person lost all their skin and it was replaced with latex a little bit, like a gimp suit or something. Mm-hmm. And then like you see their skeletons, you see like the ridges of everything. It's terrifying. And then of course. Um, the image of of his head with the tail, the like kind of like spinal cord looking like tail with like the spike mm. at the end of it. Right. It's incredibly iconic, and to this day, it's still like obviously not just because there's more movies being made about it, but it's become like one of the scariest images in our pop culture. Even just the box of our Blu-rays is the Xenomorph. I also want to bring up too. We brought it up in the other part of the episode with Jaws with the theme park attraction with Alien. One of my favorite attractions at Disney that's no longer there is the Great Movie Ride. You've been telling me about this ride. One of the best scenes in the ride was when you went through the alien scene. You're on the Nostromo. You see Ripley with her gun. She's just kind of like these slow movements looking around. (laughs) And they even, it's the one part of the ride where they say, warning, remain in your vehicle. And it has like the, like the sirens going off. You see the smoke and like the xenomorph can pop out of the pops out of the ceiling and trying to attack you. And I, that was my first exposure to Alien, and I didn't see it for many more years because I was so scared. But <laughs> I, I mean, oddly enough, it's kind of funny you mentioned Disney because Disney owns Alien now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, like I like in like on social media and for the last episode I would constantly joke about how technically one of the movies we were talking about is a Disney movie because now Shape of Water is technically a Disney movie because mm-hmm. they bought Fox. Yeah. So it's 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 just funny now that it's this movie that's just a, an icon in horror is Disney's Alien to some degree now. Oh, could oh, you just imagine man. that Disney's Alien? Come see it in theaters, kids. I did want to bring up though with with Alien, it felt like it it felt like Alien was sort of the 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 precursor or the sort of the start of like the body horror 
subgenre. Right. Especially, uh, like, for people like uh, David Cronenberg, who, I mean, these days he makes more, he makes, uh, his movies are a little bit different, but if you go back to a lot of his earlier movies, like The Brood, uh, or, of course, Scanners, where uh, there's those iconic, like, makeup effects, like, there's that, at the end of Scanners, there's that battle between Michael Ironside and I forget the actor's name, but the other actor in the movie, and you just see, like, veins pulsating and their eyes turning yeah, white. Yeah, yeah. And obviously the iconic head head explosion. And, of course, another movie that um, is very much uh, a spin on Lovecraft horror as well that almost feels like, 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 an, like an extension of Alien a little bit was The Thing. Yes. Like John Carpenter's The Thing, which is also... Got a lot of. I remember, like, I remember seeing images of the thing from like when I was younger, like, like kind of exploring horror a little bit more. And that movie terrified me. I couldn't even like. I was like, no, nah, I'm never watching this movie because it just looks scary. Like even just the bit where the guy's like has like spider legs, like like coming out of his head, which they riffed on in uh, I think it chapter two or something, and. Uh, like that alone was terrifying enough. I was like, no, <laughs> nothing. <thank> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it, it sort of was like a like a precursor to that. Where like I feel like if you didn't have if you didn't have Alien be as successful as it was, you wouldn't have been able to have those other similar body horror um, body horror experiences. Those movies, you know what I mean? Oh, for sure. I will say uh, on that note, I do. I um. In relation to uh, a trend in horror that happened in the early 2000s is the the torture porn uh, kick that happened with the movies like Saw and mm-hmm. movies like um, uh, Hostel or whatever. Those movies, I think, personally for me, are like poor representations of movies like Alien or The Thing, where like those movies used the body horror element as shocking as it was, but they used it properly they used it sparingly they used it the pretty much just enough that it doesn't become overbearing or just too too gross or realistic like you know as scary and as unnerving as a chestburster is to some degree we know that's not real mm-hmm. sure we know that's not too overdone whereas with something like saw as much as i love james wan or something like hostile is um you know the gore and stuff in those movies it just feels too realistic and too disgusting like like going back to jaws for a second we talked about i remember you were telling me the story about the severed arm and how um you know initially they made it look super realistic and uh steven spielberg uh said no it doesn't look real to me or something or it doesn't look like enough to me and so like they they changed it yeah 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 um i mean different circumstances but um, in that same vein, I feel like a lot of these, a lot of those movies in the early two thousands, uh, those kind of horror movies, just completely misrepresented, like kind of body horror in those and and those kind of like earlier movies like Alien or The Thing, and so that's probably why like and also those were movies that were responding to nine eleven and the whole concept that people just can't be afraid anymore unless you like try to scare the crap out of them with. Like something that looked real and visceral and 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 violent and disgusting, and so it's it's funny to think that like you know you watch like movies like that like those older movies like like the thing or Alien or anything like that, and you remember those those really like kind of disgusting moments, but they work 
to some degree. Even like the werewolf transformation scene in uh, American Werewolf. Thank you. Yes, American Werewolf in London, which is very much like a very intense moment, but you don't see a lot of that in the movie because it's used, it's utilized so well. And because it kind of is somewhat of a mythical or somewhat unrealistic thing that it terrifies us because it's not something that, you know what I mean? I know I'm kind of like circling around, but like, I, no, I sure. felt like I, no, I, I can, I yeah. felt like I had, I feel like I felt like I needed to like address that a little bit because there was that moment in the early two thousands. I just don't like torture porn type movies. I, I just don't like those types of horror movies. It's not scary and it's just gross. Sure. For sure. Yeah, so I wanted to we wanted to touch on this because this was one of the main factors with this episode is how startlingly uh, relevant uh, Alien is <laughs> oh. in 2020. Oh my god, just the whole that whole similar to the mayor scene in Jaws uh, with Alien, the scene when they're coming back after John Hurt got the facehugger like leapt onto his face, um, and they're like, "Let us in," and then Ripley, the smart one, is just like, "No." That, that there's simple quarantine protocols, quarantine protocols, that if we break them, things could go bad, and I can't let you in. And um, uh, Ash lets them in because, you know, he's a sick robot individual uh, who wants to see the destruction of everything. He, um, you know, he opens the doors, and, well, preceding that, stuff gets terrible. <laughs> The other thing is too the the two most like working class characters in the movie are always just like why don't we just freeze like, them what why can't we just freeze this, the guy just put him in cryo what are you doing why are you dissecting him it's really a play on the whole like curiosity kills the cat thing you know like you look too much into mm-hmm. it acid's gonna shoot out at you again with with the other thing too we we brought up with you were you were mentioning this to me last night when we were uh, about to watch Alien um, is that both both animals both creatures in these movies are basically perfect like basically perfect like uh, evolutionary perfection oh yeah on, on on some level you know i mean i mean just from a scientific level the shark has evolved you know over the years to literally be like almost the perfect predator i mean you know you hear that in like documentaries and on national geographic and discovery channel all the time um with the xenomorph that's what i think ash become so fascinated with is this idea of this near perfect individual he's got amazing defense mechanisms you almost can't kill him as often as people have tried especially the predator (laughs) uh you just you can't like you you can't kill a xenomorph really without you know killing yourself and um even the fact that he's you know unburdened by conscience and all the stuff that we think about like our own morality and our own mortality and our and our own like desires and everything, and that's something that uh, Ash becomes super fascinated with, and to some degree, I think something that Ridley Scott becomes super fascinated with because that was kind of the big theme that was playing out through both uh, Prometheus and Alien Covenant, or at least from what I've seen, <laughs> is uh, just this idea of evolution. This idea of where did we come from? Right. It's almost like he he wanted the alien concept to feel more like 2001: A Space Odyssey, but a little bit less metaphorical. Yeah, and I, I feel like too, like this 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 in many ways does feel very much like a Kubrick film. You know the the way it's shot, right? 
And like you were saying to me before, like with the way, way they frame certain shots, and then when when it comes like an intense or like action sequence, it's a little bit little little shaky, and like you're you're unsure of what's you're not a hundred percent sure of what is exactly going on. With both of these movies, I think you know with horror, I think people have different expectations nowadays than they did in the seventies as far as horror movie goes. I agree with that, but I can't help but recommend these movies like wholeheartedly. You know, and especially this viewing of Alien, I was able to appreciate it a lot more this time than I have in the other experiences I've had with this movie. I think, I don't know, I, I'm pretty sure we both feel the same on this, but as far as Alien is concerned, I think, for me, that's my favorite in the in the whole franchise, is that first one. It, I agree. As much as I do love, like, Aliens, um, that first one, it just, it's it sticks with you. It's just, latch, like a face hugger, it latches onto you and doesn't let go. It's it's literally I think it's the perfect version of what it aspired what it aspired to be mm-hmm. um, essentially you know and same thing with Jaws I mean Jaws is is arguably like the the most accessible accessible horror movie blockbuster <laughs> adventure action movie there is you know two hours lean mean great characters some fun scenes it's just a great time and then Alien is just like <laughs> like Alien you need to like you know watch with a friend if you're if you're not like if you, if you want to like you know if you're if you're easily scared or if you're just just somewhat easily scared watch it with a buddy it helps <laughs> this is also one of uh it's a nice double feature too because they're both films from the 70s they're both you know monster movies but also they're both relatively short jaws is just over two hours aliens under two hours it's great which is so nice it's so like again i love seven samurai but it's a long movie. I'm just I'm happy that to watch. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just happy to watch two relatively like shorter like length movies. So that's nice. Sure, sure. Anyway, as usual, this was a lot of fun. Uh, you can follow us uh, individually on our Letterbox accounts, YouTube. But two dudes, one double feature also has Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So be sure to follow us there. You know, share us around, comment. What are some of your favorite monster movies or horror movies from any sort of period in time? Let us know, please. We really wanna um, we really wanna hear what you have to say. We might even bring you up in our next episode because I think that's something we should totally we should totally oh, do. Yeah. Is just like, you know, say, hey, shout out to Brian from Idaho. I don't know, it's a made up person. Watch us actually have someone named Brian from Idaho that listens to this. <laughs> I-, I would be so happy if that happened. <laughs> Brian from Idaho, thank you for listening. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, folks, uh, listen to us next week, and we'll have another, another fun double feature for you guys. Have a good night, everyone. Final report of the Two Dudes, One Double Feature podcast. Dude One reporting. The crew of this show would like to thank everyone for listening to this week's episode. They'd also like to thank John and Kenny Armstrong for providing amazing music, as always. And finally, they'd like to inform everyone that next week's episode will focus on two 10-year-old comic book adaptations that were both box office bombs, but both left a lasting legacy. This is Dude One, Richard. Silly co-host of the Two Dudes, One Double Feature podcast, signing off.